Medical research sits at the intersection of the lab and the clinic. It's critical for translating breakthrough science into possible treatments for people. It's most successful when scientists and clinicians collaborate. Today, we're talking with one of Australia's leading oncologists who is working to improve the treatment, survival and quality of life of cancer patients. Hi, I'm Mara Jean Tilley and this is Medical Minds, the podcast of the Garvin Institute of Medical Research. In this series, we're diving deep into the minds of our amazing researchers to find out how they tick and how they are working to make our lives better. With me here is Professor Anthony Joshua, Head of the Department of Medical Oncology at St Vincent's Hospital, Sydney, at the Kinghorn Cancer Centre. Welcome, Anthony. Thank you for having me. Anthony, you're also Garvin's Clinical Science Director. Can you talk to us a bit about your different roles and what you do? My first role is that of uh, Head of the Department of Medical Oncology at uh, St Vincent's Hospital and the Kinghorn Cancer Centre. So as head of the Department of Medical Oncology, I take responsibility for the Department of Medical Oncologists who treat cancer. Medical oncologists treat cancer by coordinating cancer care and also delivering pills and intravenous treatments such as immunotherapy, targeted therapy and chemotherapy to patients suffering from cancer in order to either cure them or help them live longer and live better. That's the uh, medical oncology hat. And obviously we work with surgeons, we work with radiation oncologists, we work with allied health professionals to deliver that part of cancer care um, that is needed when someone has a complex cancer problem. As clinical pillar director uh, at uh, the Garvin Institute of Medical Research, my responsibilities are to help to coordinate the clinical application of research carried out at the Garvin and to facilitate the translation from the lab to the clinic and sometimes from the clinic back into the lab uh, of all the wonderful stuff that comes out of the Garvin laboratories. But but it's very enjoyable learning to uh, move discoveries from the lab to the clinic and also learning from the patients and taking some of those learnings back into the laboratory. So I like being busy and having a foot in both camps allows me, I think, to be a better doctor and also to be a better scientist. You must have quite a lot of ground to cover each day. How do you manage your time? Look, it's exciting work. So, so it, it's enjoyable too. So it doesn't to me matter so much the amount of time I spend on it because it's enjoyable and I know we're making advances every day. Um, so it's very exciting to help facilitate patient care. It's very exciting to help facilitate discoveries being moved into the clinic and to write protocols and write clinical trials to help benefit patients. So I'm, I'm yet to find the perfect balance, I think, but it changes. Some months it happens to be more clinical. Some months it happens to be more scientific it changes. I don't know if there's a there's necessarily a right answer, but we, I do my best. What's exciting you right now in the world of oncology, and how much has changed since you first became a clinician? When I started as a medical oncologist, I distinctly remember having conversations with patients who I was treating for melanoma, where there was literally maybe one treatment that didn't actually work very well. So those conversations were very sad and frustrating. Now I'm allowed to use the word cure when I talk to a patient who has melanoma that's spread. It's extraordinarily satisfying and gratifying and and such a relief for the patients as well to know that we have such effective treatments that we can cure patients from a metastatic melanoma that used to be a universally lethal disease. So 
the advances even in my short career have been mind-blowing and I can talk at length about immunotherapy for various cancers and now we have not only effective immunotherapy, but immunotherapy available to all Australians for a lot of cancers ranging from kidney cancer to melanoma that I mentioned to lung cancer. A lot of these common cancers have effective immunotherapy where we have drugs which take away the breaks from the immune system so the immune system is turned on and seeks to attack anything that looks foreign. So that advance was a conceptual breakthrough. It led to a number of Nobel Prizes, and it's really now at the forefront of oncology care. So that's certainly been an advance uh, in my lifetime that's been amazing to live through. We have lots of other advances as we understand more and more about cellular biology, about what makes a cancer tick. We have drugs which turn off motors in cells, which make the cancer cells grow. And most of these cancer cells, just to illustrate for the audience, have like a Ferrari motor inside a Holden, like it shouldn't be there and it causes problems. Um, And so if you turn off the Ferrari engine inside the Holden, the whole thing slows down. And we have drugs to do that in, again, a number of cancers where we can analyze the DNA of the cancer and understand what the problems are, what's turned on, what's turned off that shouldn't be turned off and see if we have a drug that will turn off the engine. Um, So that's also been an amazing advance to live through. And I I remember, again, as a young oncologist, uh, having similar conversations about kidney cancer, but then saying, but we've got this new drug, you know, it seems like it works well in early trials, you should probably try it, and I'll get you onto a trial to get this drug. And now those drugs are very widely available. So that sort of thematic advance has been amazing, again, to live through. And I could go on and on about a number of other types of treatments that every day we are testing here um, at the Kinghorn and at the Garvin with patients and clinical trials, and that we are contributing to the global knowledge base of drugs which can be used to treat cancer, um, ranging from very precise chemotherapies to drugs, radioactive drugs, which attach to cancers and radiate very precisely the cancer with radiation without damaging any, any of the surrounding tissue. So there's so many advances in cancer care and it is really an exciting journey to be part of as an oncologist. You mentioned clinical trials. How important are clinical trials and how easy is it to get one up? So clinical trials, are I mean, they're, they're critical in terms of us understanding how effective a drug is and how safe a drug is. And there's different types of clinical trials. So clinical trials, they range from something called a first in human phase one trial where the drug may have been tested in um, mice and uh, other types of vertebrates before it gets tested in human beings. And then we test it in human beings in small doses and they can be very exciting because some of those drugs work very well um, and ranging to what we call a phase four trial. We're really trying to understand in precise detail how effective the drug is and and understand its side effects in, in large patient populations. And so we do all of those types of trials here on campus and done throughout the world in cancer centers. And we also create those trials. So we have discoveries that come out of the laboratory and depending on what those discoveries relate to and what drugs they relate to, we will uh, sometimes run those trials ourselves when we discover, for example, that a drug may be used for a type of cancer that no one's thought of using it before, but the drug is freely available. Or we may want to use a drug which is approved for a different type of cancer in, a, in another type of cancer or use a drug for a certain type of cancer earlier on in the patient journey. 
than otherwise we would. So we work both with drug companies to run clinical trials. We work with Australian clinical groups to run clinical trials called cooperative groups uh, because they cooperate with each other. And we use uh, do clinical trials out of the discoveries that are made on campus. So there's different types of clinical trials, and, and but they are very essential to understand how best to treat somebody. Anthony, tell us about the length of time it would typically take from a research discovery in the laboratory to launching a clinical trial with patients. So the answer to that question kind of depends on what drugs we're talking about or if it's just a test to understand how well a patient would do with their cancer or not. But if we take an example of drugs, uh, if it's a drug that's been used before and we understand its safety, which is paramount, then that can happen very quickly. So we've had clinical trials here from discoveries in the laboratories here that have been in the clinic within a year. We show that it works. We get the work scientifically reviewed to make sure it's valid. Usually it's published. And then we bring it into patients. And that can happen extraordinarily quickly if we're dealing with drugs which are used in conjunction with a standard of care drug, or we're using drugs which are otherwise considered to be very safe and we're giving them for cancer that they haven't been used for before. If we're dealing with drugs that have, or chemicals that have never been tested in human beings before, there is an extensive process after those drugs are created to go through a number of tests to make sure they're safe, usually in the order of two to three years at least before you get it anywhere near a human being, best case scenario. The safety requirements are so thorough that once it gets into the clinic, then there's a very, again, a slow process to make sure it's safe and the side effects are understood and you can then slowly go up on the dose, which in that process will then again take a number of years before you're launching into larger clinical trials to understand how effective the drug is. You mentioned the remarkable advances with treating cancers like melanoma. What other cancer types are on the horizon for radical improvement with, say, treatment, survival and quality of life? In the next five to ten years, in some ways, these cancers go in waves. So we do see sometimes that there's a wave of breakthroughs in a certain cancer. So a few years ago, the the waves of breakthroughs were coming through with kidney cancer and then more recently with lung cancer. Um, So looking ahead, I can certainly tell you what cancers are overdue for a breakthrough. So so we certainly have big problems with pancreas cancer. We have big problems with brain cancer, two being two very lethal cancers that the Australian government has actually put a lot of money into researching. And we're doing some great work at the Garvin understanding those cancers to lead to better drug treatments. So I I would hope that in the next five to 10 years, there'll be conceptual breakthroughs in pancreas cancer as well as in brain cancer and glioblastoma multiforme so that we can actually help patients live longer. Those two cancers in particular in my world are well overdue for a breakthrough of treatment. And there are some very promising trials out there. And sooner or later, one of them is going to hit pay dirt and we'll be able to give very precise, safe therapy. And I'm not talking about an incremental advance. I'm talking about a fundamental understanding about cancer biology that's going to lead to a major advance in cancer treatment. We undoubtedly, as one of my mentors used to say, cure cancer 1% at a time for all cancers slowly over a number of years. But in terms of a fundamental breakthrough, in terms of understanding how to treat a cancer uh, and leading to major advances in longevity and also quality of life. I'd hope that those two cancers in particular are addressed in the short term. You're seeing patients in the clinic on most days. 
How motivating is that for your research? It's very motivating to, to see the smile on a patient's face and to see their family cry out of happiness sometimes when you can, can deliver good news. So it certainly motivates me to keep going. I sort of think conceptually about every patient as if they were a family member. So I certainly uh, push the boundaries of everything I can do to to help them. And that help sometimes is also f- sort of philosophical help and to tell them sometimes when we're going to push hard and when we're not going to push hard and when it's time to try something else and when it's time to stop uh, as well, which is also part of my job. And sometimes that's uh, not the easiest conversation to, to have, but, but sometimes you have to think about the quality of life. Tell us about your big research goals for the next, say, five years. What would you like to achieve? I do research both in the lab and in the clinic on prostate cancer and as well as uh, recently some work on the lab and the clinic on ovarian cancer. And then in the clinic, we do a lot of work on a certain type of melanoma, melanoma of the eye, called uveal melanoma. So I guess my aspirations, generally speaking, is to sort of see some of my research reach the light of day and, and be able to help patients. And so that in the ovarian cancer area has been has involved developing some non-chemotherapy options for women with ovarian cancer, which is quite exciting. And they are now in clinical trials here at the Kinghorn Cancer Centre, which is also very exciting. This particular case, taking a drug, which is an old breast cancer drug and a special type of antibiotic. So that's quite exciting. And I'd love to see that help women with ovarian cancer. Um, And in the uveal melanoma area, that's also one of those lethal types of cancers. We've had some recent breakthroughs. And that is quite a devastating type of cancer, actually. Not only do patients lose their eye, but sometimes they, they also get a very rapid progression, which until recently we didn't have any treatments for. So we've done some work on understanding what the patient journey is, understanding what's important to patients, and understanding how we can help them in terms of treatments, both immunotherapy, using the immune system to attack the cancer, as well as some targeted therapy. And then with the prostate cancer, which we've done quite a bit of work on, what we're trying to do is A, develop better treatments and also finesse the treatments that we have so we don't cause too many side effects. So there's a lot of work being done on balancing some of the toxicities of treatment with some of the benefits of having the cancer treated, which is sort of unique to some of these cancers that occur in in the elderly population. Can you tell us about the use of genomics in oncology? So genomics is one of those things that we are very much on the journey with at the moment in Western medicine, understanding the DNA of the patient, understanding the DNA of the cancer, they're related but not the same, to understand what the best treatment is. Often we'll take a sample of the tumour from the surgery or what have you and send that DNA off to get analysed to understand where are the weaknesses in the DNA and do we have drugs for those weaknesses that we can take advantage of to kill the cancer. So those tests are... Important tests are mostly accessible to all Australians through the MBS and Medicare, and we do some research tests as well. So those tests are still very much, I would say, a work in progress. Uh, We're still learning about what do these changes mean. We're still learning about what are the best drugs for those changes and how do we get our hands on those drugs. Often we do that through clinical trials. But one day we'll look back on 2022 and say, weren't those tests so crude? We thought we were so good but actually we didn't know that much. So we are still 
making those tests better every single year uh, by understanding more about the DNA and getting access to better drugs to turn off the cancer by attacking the weaknesses in the DNA. So depending on the cancer that a certain patient has, sometimes the genomic tests are very useful to either provide information about prognosis or to provide information about treatment. And sometimes the genomic tests are not that useful because either there's nothing to see here or we don't have any drugs for that. And even if we wanted to somehow take advantage of that weakness we see in the DNA, we don't know how to. And if we knew how to, we've got to design a chemical which is safe to give to a human being. So it's a long journey. It's an exciting journey. Uh, when you find something to help a patient with, uh, when you've analyzed the DNA of their cancer, but uh, it's still a work in progress, but very promising. Did you always want to be a medical doctor? I think deep down I did. There was a bit of a journey there, understanding, getting my arms and legs aligned with my brain. My brain definitely wanted to be a medical doctor, I think, from a young age, because I found it fascinating to understand the unknown. Like I was very much attracted to the gray, to the uncertainty of, in particular, oncology. And the need to sort of think carefully through every decision and understand the holistic picture about patient care. So that's very much attracted me. It just took me a little while to align my arms and legs and mouth to what my brain was telling it, but we got there. And what were you thinking about doing when you were uncertain? Uh, you know, I, I flirted with other types of career. I think deep down, deep down, I wanted to be a composer. I don't have that talent and I certainly can't sing. At one point, I thought about becoming a lawyer that attacks doctors for medical malpractice. But then I realized it's probably just much easier being a doctor and helping people directly, not indirectly. Where did your interest in medicine originally come from? So I, I grew up in a family of doctors. So my father is a doctor. My uncle is a doctor. My auntie is a doctor. It was very pleasant. It was like kind of exciting. When at one point in my doctor journey, I worked with my father so that was nice on so many levels, actually, that you sort of, uh, maybe a bit embarrassing for him, he still reminds me the times <laughs> that I didn't <laughs> perform the best, but um, it, was, it was nice to see, you, you, you know, your parent working as a professional. So that's kind of something that children don't often get to see. What would you say has been the greatest challenge in your career? So I think what I find most challenging is to push the boundaries. When I say push the boundaries, that means writing grants, it means engaging with pharmaceutical companies, it means engaging with patients. That often involves a lot of reading, frustrating grant proposals, writing back to reviewers about the paper you submitted that you thought was fantastic, but they didn't. That you know sometimes can be frustrating. Ultimately, it's rewarding. And it's probably about once every four to six months, I have a sort of eureka day when everything aligns. But uh, most of the time, there's always something, something's gone wrong most of the time. Certainly sometimes I think that's driven by impatience. So I'm what you want to make the difference tomorrow, not in a year's time. And sometimes that can lead to frustrations with the pace at which you have to go to, in particular in medicine, the way you, the way we've sort of been trained was, well, why didn't you do that test already? And you sort of bring that mindset into the laboratory, which can be sometimes difficult. So there's definitely a different philosophy between running a laboratory and and clinical medicine. In laboratory, you have to methodically plan things out, do things very slowly, whereas in clinical medicine, very much the attitude is, well, why didn't you do that test yesterday? Because we're here today having to make a decision. Now the decision has to be delayed because you didn't do the test in the first place. So, and you try and translate that. doesn't really translate well into the lab. The lab, you've got to think things through, discuss them, have meetings, 
plan the experiments out slowly, then the experiment will go wrong. I have a rule of three, which I tell my trainees that if you're in the laboratory, you need to do every experiment three times. The first time you think you're doing it right, it'll go dramatically badly. The second time you think you're doing it right and half the experiment will work. It's only the third time that actually things will work out well. So there's that constant tension uh, in someone who's impatient to move things forward that you, you have to balance out. So, Anthony, we're going to turn to the fast five. Okay. What do you do in your spare time? Exercise. Secret skills. I know most of the words to too many Andrew Lloyd Webber musicals. I think in a previous life I was a singer or a choreographer or something because I have an inappropriate affinity to matters theatrical, which I don't quite understand. Your favourite musical? Favourite musical, Next to Normal, which is a musical actually about mental health. What was the last movie you watched? Uh, Thor Ragnarok with my 11-year-old son. Favourite holiday? East coast of Africa, on a bus, driving down the east coast over a month, carefully avoiding getting any infectious disease and getting robbed. And being on my toes yet being exposed to cultures that were so amazing, uh, it was mind-blowing is, I think, something I often talk about and very excited about. Professor Anthony Joshua, it's been wonderful to speak to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you. If you'd like to know more about Professor Anthony Joshua's research or the work of the Garvin Institute, head to garvin.org.au. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review and share with other podcast lovers. I'm Mara Jean Tilly. Thanks for listening. This podcast was recorded on the traditional country of the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation. We recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and community. We pay our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders, past, present and emerging.